Uh, this is a continuation of a study we began, I guess, two weeks ago, uh, and we're calling it Reasons to Believe. And what we're looking at are some different aspects of our Christian faith, and in this first section, what we're looking at is the uniqueness of the Christian faith. And really, when you look closely at what true Christianity is all about, there isn't anything else on the face of the earth like it. It's not just another religion. It's something totally different from every other religion. And the reason we're looking at this is both to strengthen our own faith, but also, as we learned in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, we are always to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us about the reason why we are a Christian. And I think we've all had the experience where somebody caught us off guard and said, why do you believe? Why do you go to church? Why are you a Christian? And we were, we were sort of unprepared to give an answer to that. So our purpose in these studies is to equip ourselves um, so that we can give reasoned, logical answers uh, concerning our faith in Christ. And we saw that verse in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Uh, we might go there again just to get our bearings here. It says, But in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and with respect. And of course, the Greek word here is apologia, from which we get the word apologetics which is not to be confused with apologizing. We're not apologizing for the truth or for the gospel, but we are giving a reasoned, logical defense of our faith in Christ. And actually, one of the translations, I believe it's the Amplified, that's how it reads. Give a logical defense. And, you know, a lot of people think, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be illogical. That you have to kind of turn off your brain and just have blind faith. <clears throat> Nothing could be further from the truth. Our faith in God is based on facts. It's based on reason. It's based on things that are confirmed by uh, archaeology and so many other things. So that in the end we should each be able to give a very good, reasonable, logical explanation why the best thing that any man, woman, or child can do is to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> we saw also that even in that verse in First Peter, when we do this, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. Other verses we looked at, it talks about doing it courteously, uh, respectfully, uh, let your speech be seasoned with grace, and so forth. So we're not going around arguing with people and trying to beat them over the head with the truth of the gospel. Uh, these are things that we need to do humbly, because our goal is not to win a debate, it's to win souls. And so if we are properly equipped with the facts and with the truth, I think we can do that in a humble way, but in a very confident way. All right, let me summarize what we did last time. We are looking at some of the claims of Christianity. And I think this is very important to understand what does Christianity claim to be? And when you look at these claims, they're pretty wild claims, pretty exclusive claims. And either they're true, or this is some wacko religion that we ought to 
run as far away from as we possibly can if these claims are not backed up by facts and real evidence. The first claim we looked at is the God of the Bible, the God that we all read about in Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy and all the way up to the book of Revelation, the God of the Bible, in the Bible, he claims to be the only true God. That there isn't a second, he has no equal, there's no one else like him, and repeatedly, the proof that he gives in the Bible that he is the one and only true God is that he made heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things. And we looked at a number of scriptures. Uh, we're not going to go back to all of them, but this uh, first part was recorded if you missed it. But I just want to read one again because I love this passage so much. Jeremiah 10 from verse 10 to 12. <coughs> Jeremiah 10, 10 to 12. It says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal King. When He is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure His wrath. Tell them this, These gods who did not make the heavens and the earth, will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power, he founded the world by his wisdom, and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And many other similar passages you find, uh, we looked at some in Isaiah, uh, where God repeatedly calls on any other so-called God in the universe to come forward and prove who you are because I made heaven and earth. I made the septillion stars in the universe. I created everything and I have no equal. I share my glory with no one. And so over and over, the God of the Bible... He himself claims to be the one and the only true God. Along with that, Christ, when he came to the earth, he also made some bold claims. And we're going to look at more of these as we proceed in this study. But Christ claimed that he is the only way to that God and that he is the only way to salvation and the only way to heaven. So again, we see both God Almighty and God the Son, Jesus, when he came to this earth, they both made these exclusive claims. For instance, in John 14, 6, we all know the verse, Jesus answered, I am the way, not one of the ways, not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is absolutely exclusive. That excludes any other religion, any other system, that claims to be a way to reaching God. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God, to heaven, and to salvation. Thirdly, we saw, and I think this is where we ended last time, the Bible, and we're going to talk more about where the Bible came from and how can we trust the Bible, but the Bible itself, in many, many places, it claims to be the one and only true revelation from God. So we have God in the Bible claiming that he's the only God, and then the Bible itself claiming to be the only true revelation from that God. 
So we have these exclusive claims, both from God himself, from Jesus himself, and now from the Bible itself, that it's the only true revelation of God. For instance, we saw in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. It says, all Scripture, Scripture means something written, the written Bible, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. This Bible claims to be unlike any other book on the face of the earth. There isn't any other religious book, any other kind of writings of religion that compares to the Bible. The Bible is the only book that claims to have the absolute authority of being God's Word. God wrote the Bible, and He used 40 different authors, but they were inspired by God to write down the things that they wrote. And also we looked in 2 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is an interesting passage because in 2 Peter 1, Peter is remembering his experience with James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, where they saw Jesus transfigured, they saw Moses and Elijah, and they actually heard the audible voice of God from heaven. And Peter is recounting that experience here, and in 2 Peter 1, starting with verse 16, he says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's a very important word, by the way, eyewitnesses, and we're going to come back and talk about that more. Um, suffice it to say, at this point, Christianity is richly backed up and confirmed by eyewitness accounts. First-hand eyewitnesses that saw all of the different things that we read about in the Gospels. So Peter says, we're not just telling you some crazy stories that we made up. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And then in verse 17, he goes on to say, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Of course, this is a direct reference to that experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter saying, I was there, I saw it, and I heard it with my own ears. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. But listen to what he says in the next verse. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain. I think the King James says, uh, let me turn to that a minute here. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Now you've got to follow what he's saying here. We have something more sure than the audible voice of God that we heard on the mountain. A lot of times, you know, we hear people say, Oh, God spoke to me, or God told me this. That's all good and well. But we saw in Isaiah 8, if they don't speak according to the written word, they have no light in them. 
the absolute, final, ultimate authority on truth is not voices, it's the scriptures. And so Peter says, we have something more sure than even that audible voice of God that I heard personally on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, what could possibly be more sure than hearing God the Father's audible voice? He says, knowing this, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, we have this repeated claim in the Bible itself, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this is God's revelation, this is His ultimate and final word. And we have warnings both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to anyone who would dare to add to it or to take away from it. And let me read that one again in the book of Revelation, the final book, the final chapter, in verse 18 of Revelation 22. John writes, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life and the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. A very strong and solemn warning. So the Bible itself gives these exclusive claims and even these dire warnings against anyone changing it, manipulating it, adding to it, or taking away from it. And of course, Jesus himself said, heaven and earth will first pass away before one jot or tittle in the scriptures can be changed. In another place, he was quoting an obscure Old Testament verse, and then he said, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture, the written word. So, we have God claiming in the Bible to be the only true God. When Jesus came into the world, he claimed to be the only way of salvation and the only way to the true God. Then we have the Bible itself claiming to be the one and the only true revelation of this Creator God. And then we want to move on to something new tonight, and this is a fourth exclusive claim that is found repeatedly in the Scriptures. And we'll start by looking in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And this is related to what we already talked about, where Jesus himself claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to God but through me. But along with that, and this is separate and distinct from that, the way of salvation that is presented to us in the Bible is claimed to be the only way. There are many, many religions in the world, and all of them may claim something, but there's no other writing like the Bible that repeatedly states there's one salvation. There aren't many roads, there aren't many ways to heaven. There's one salvation, and it spells it out very plainly how that salvation can be received. Acts 4, verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. And of course, in context, it's a direct reference to Jesus Christ. He's mentioned in verses 10 and 11. 
nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's exclusive. That doesn't give any wiggle room. It doesn't allow for, well, maybe there's a plan B or C, or maybe uh, some other religion will get me to the same place that Christianity does. No, repeatedly, Christianity claims there's only one salvation. It's not just a series of rules and laws. It's a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And some other verses that you're probably familiar with. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. We're told in verse 4 that God desires all men to be saved. So even though there's just one way to be saved... This is not exclusive in the sense that it's only for a select few. This salvation is for all of mankind. And God has expressed His desire here. He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, here again, there's this exclusive claim. There's only one God, and there's only one way to get to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And the writers of the New Testament were so boldly convinced that Christ was the only Savior, His salvation is the only salvation, and the good news of Christ that they preached in every town and every city was the only true gospel. They felt so strongly about that that you find passages like this next one in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul gives a strong warning, similar to what we read at the end of the book of Revelation, for anyone that would dare preach another kind of a gospel, or another kind of a message with a different way to salvation, a different way to reach God. Galatians chapter 1, in verse 6, Paul writes, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Listen carefully to verses 8 and 9. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, and we have some uh, pretty popular religions, like Mormonism, for instance, that claim to have started through some sort of an angelic revelation, Paul says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached and what is already recorded for us in the New Testament Scriptures, if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's a strong word. And... The, the word in the Greek is the word anathema. And it can mean, let him be banned, excommunicated, or cursed. A very stern warning for anyone 
that would try to change this one and only message of good news, hope, and salvation. And in case we didn't hear him, in verse 9, he says, And as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. So, God claims to be the only God. The God of the Bible is the only true God. Jesus comes to earth and claims to be the only way to God, the only way to salvation. Then, the Bible itself claims to be the ultimate, final authority, the revelation, the Word of God, which tells us that there's only one way to salvation. So, we have some pretty amazing claims that are made by Christianity, and we should know these and understand them, and to be able to boldly defend each one of these. And we're going to be looking at some of these different aspects in more detail as we move along, but I'm just trying to give a broad framework here. One of the things that I've mentioned about the Christian faith and the New Testament in particular, there is abundant historical evidence for every facet of Christianity. It's based upon historical facts. It's based upon better records than we have for George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or any other well-known biographical figure. We have far more documentation about the, the life the person, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other human being that ever walked the earth. And so the Christian faith is based on historical facts. And we can even go back beyond that. And the Bible documents where the universe came from. No other religious writing claims to give a sound historical explanation on the origin of the universe. The Bible starts right off in the opening verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And chapter 1 of Genesis documents the six days of creation, where the sun, the moon, and the stars came from, where all the plants and the flowers came from, where the fish the birds, and of course, where man came from. No other religion can claim to have the historical basis and account of where everything came from. And Christianity is not just based on Christ's teachings alone, but it's based on his person, who he was and who he is. His birth, His life, His miracles, His death, and His resurrection. And it gives uh, detailed accounts of every aspect of that. And the God who created the universe saw fit to give us, in the Bible, a detailed account of where everything came from how the universe came into being, and how man came into being. It even explains in Genesis 3 where sin came from, where death came from, where suffering came from, and of course it gives the whole history of God's redemptive program and His ultimate desire for mankind. Now, let me come back and let's go into a little more detail now about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. There is no other human being in human history at all like Jesus. 
And as I've mentioned earlier in this study, if you look at the claims of Christ, and we're going to look in more detail at some of the specific things Jesus claimed to be. If you look at his claims, these are so wild, so exclusive, and so off the chart that either he was a a deranged madman, completely out of his mind, and none of those claims could be backed up, and we might as well just forget about following him and look somewhere else for salvation. Or, if every claim that he made was backed up and there were eyewitnesses that give accounts of those things, then we need to take a much more serious look at his claims. And we saw in 1 Timothy 2, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So, just looking at the human side of Jesus for a few minutes, there's no other human being like him in all of human history. His first advent, his first coming into the world, had been carefully documented and predicted hundreds of years before it took place in precise detail. And we're going to look at this more later on when we talk about prophecy in the Bible. It's one of the greatest proofs that the Bible is what it claims to be, God's Word. Because over and over and over, it has made predictions hundreds of years ahead of time with very exacting detail, and every one of those details came to pass. So, his first coming into the world was predicted in precise detail. The Bible told us his lineage, exactly who his forefathers would be, what tribe of Israel he would come from. The Bible predicted his exact birthplace, the time of his coming. It told us about his career, his purpose for coming, the nature of his death, his resurrection, and on and on and on it goes. And again, all of these things were predicted hundreds of years beforehand. Absolutely incredible. And when we come back to this later on, we're going to look at the mathematical probability of somebody making all these wild predictions hundreds of years ago about where somebody would be born, what their family lineage would be, how they were going to die, and how they were going to rise from the dead, all those things being predicted with perfect accuracy. The chance of that happening by some, some random act is absolutely impossible. And so, as he was repeatedly referred to, He was the coming Messiah, coming into the world to bring salvation, to bring redemption. And because of that, the Jewish people in particular, they knew these prophecies. They knew the scriptures about he was going to be born in Bethlehem and and what lineage he would come out of and all of that. So they were anticipating his birth for centuries before he actually came. Now, let's break this down a little bit further. Let's talk for a little bit about his birth. His birth was unlike any other human being. And in Matthew chapter 1, unfortunately, a lot of times we only hear about this at Christmas time, when we sing Christmas carols, or view a manger scene, or go to a Christmas play, but this is a very important part of the gospel. (coughs) And it's one of the first things that sets Jesus apart from any other human being, that being his virgin birth. Matthew 1, beginning at verse 18. 
This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. That had never happened before, and it will never happen again. This was one miraculous birth, unmatched by any other human birth. Verse 19, Because Joseph, Mary's husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child, and of course this is quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, a prophecy written about 800 years beforehand. The virgin will be with child, and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And lest there be any confusion about this, the next two verses clear that up. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So, the virgin birth of Jesus makes him absolutely unique. A second thing that is hinted at in these verses that we just read, but there are other scriptures that elaborate on it, not only was Jesus fully human, he was also fully divine. And that's an absolute mystery. No one can possibly or fully comprehend that, but this again sets Jesus apart from anyone else. He was both God and man. He was born of a woman, but he was born from above. He is fully God, and he is fully human. And probably the best scripture that we know that talks about this in just a few verses is found in John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. John chapter 1, from verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very clear. The Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word, we're not fully sure yet who this Word is, but the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John, referring, of course, to John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. 
he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 14, the word, remember, the word in verse 1 we learn was with God, and was God, and all things were made by that word. Now in verse 14, John ties it all together for us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, he identifies who this word is. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And as you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus repeatedly told the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and other people that were listening to him, in no uncertain terms, I and my Father are one. I came from heaven, and I'm going back to heaven. Before Abraham was, I am. Repeatedly, Jesus, although he was flesh and blood, born of a woman, he claimed to be almighty, creator, eternal God. And again, th this sets him apart from any other human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Fully human, fully divine. Fully man, and fully God. Let's look at two other verses, because this is such a, an integral part of the whole gospel. He had to become human so that he could die as a sacrifice for our sins, but he was not just some human hero dying for everyone. He was God become flesh so that he could fully redeem man. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul explains this to us in a different way. Philippians chapter 2, from verse 5 to 11. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't have to grasp after that. He is God. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You know, when we really try to comprehend this, it just absolutely blows our mind. And I don't care how many years you've been a Christian, I've been a believer 40 years, and every time I sit down and really consider what we just read here, it absolutely blows me away that the God who set all of the stars in their, in their courses, the infinite 
eternal God who knows the end from the beginning, the one who gave everything life and breath, the only wise God who lives in unapproachable light, that creator, all-powerful, all-wise God chose to become a man like me, humbled himself, and became obedient to death on a cross, beaten like a base criminal, dying on a cross, which was the most accursed kind of death in Israel. The Old Testament tells us that anyone that died by crucifixion, it was a public testimony to the fact that they were such a horrible criminal, they were cursed by God himself. Cursed by God. And Jesus went through all of that as a man, obedient unto death, in order to bring salvation to you and to me. Fully God, fully man. It's an absolute mystery. The, the miracle of incarnation, the Word of God, became flesh. <clears throat> and as I was sharing a little bit on Sunday, and I'm going to be developing this more this coming Sunday at church, uh, when we look out at the heavens, the psalmist David said, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon, and the stars, what is man that you are mindful of him? And we're going to find out that the latest estimates from scientists are that God created one septillion stars. That's a one with 24 zeros after it. And the universe, as far as we can see with our most powerful telescopes now, from one end to the other, is 93 billion light years. That is so many trillions times trillions times trillions of miles, we can't even comprehend it. And yet the Bible says he can measure it from one end to the other with the span of his hand. And he made all of that just with his fingers. That same God is the God we're talking about here who became a man and allowed us to spit on him, pluck his beard out, drive nails through his hands and feet, and put him to death as a cruel criminal in our place because it was God's will that all of that happened in order for us to be saved. In Romans chapter 1, we're again introduced to this mystery of the God-man, the man who was both human and fully divine. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's beginning to introduce them to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he says in Romans 1-2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. It's an interesting expression. As to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, here again, it talks about both his human side, his human nature, descended from David, and his divine side the Son of God, declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. It gets even better. Jesus is unlike any other human being that ever walked or lived on the earth for yet another reason. 
the Bible repeatedly affirms that during his entire lifetime on planet Earth, he never once committed a sin. Sets him completely apart from every other human being, because we are told in no uncertain terms, in Romans 3.23 and many other places, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But listen to the testimony of Scripture. For instance, in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, referring to Jesus Christ. In the previous verse, Peter said, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He never lied, he never deceived anyone, he never committed any sin. Absolutely sets him apart from every other human being. First John chapter 3 and verses 4 and 5. First John 3 verses 4 and 5. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he, and in context, of course referring to Jesus, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So he committed no sin, in him is no sin. And one more verse, Second Corinthians 5, and verses 20 and 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 to 21. <laughs> Paul says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He had no sin, he knew no sin, he committed no sin, and in him is no sin. Furthermore, when Jesus was here on earth, and after he began his public ministry, which lasted for approximately three and a half years, he went from place to place, teaching, preaching, uh, giving sermons and parables, and repeatedly it was declared, we've never heard anyone speak like this. The uniqueness of his teachings, his sermons, his parables, there's never been anything like the teachings of Jesus. And for instance, in John 7, verse 46, this testimony comes not from his followers, but from the temple guards, the, the guards who were in the Jewish temple. They came back and reported to the chief priests and the Pharisees, saying in John 7, verse 46, No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards declared. No one ever spoke the way this man does. And probably his most famous and most oft often quoted sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And after he finished that sermon, we're told in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, 
Matthew 7, 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. And I can guarantee you, all the other religious writings in the world, if you compare them to the teachings of Jesus, they don't even come close. As soon as you begin reading them, you can detect a certain weakness and emptiness in all the other religious writings compared to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Another unique aspect of Jesus, not just his birth, not just his human and divine nature, his sinless life, his amazing parables and teachings, but we come finally to the uniqueness of his death. No one ever died a death like Jesus died. And there are many reasons for that, but let me just point out several. In John chapter 10, Jesus himself declared his death was going to be different from any other human death. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18. He says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. No one else has ever even talked like this, let alone, even before their death, said, you're not going to kill me. I'm going to voluntarily give up my life. And not only am I going to give up my life, but I'm going to come back to life. I have authority to lay down my life and authority to take it up again absolutely sets him apart from any other martyr, any other political hero who may have given his life for some worthy cause. Jesus makes it very clear here, you all are not going to kill me on the cross. I'm going to lay down my life for my Father because he's already given me authority to do that. He's commanded me to do this. And then finally, as he's dying on the cross, in John chapter 19, John 19, verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the drink, he said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now later on we're going to look uh, at prophecy and we're going to look at a number of the specific details that were prophesied concerning not only his birth, his life, his miracles, his ministry, but even specific details about how he would die. The, the, the detailed description of his death uh, on the cross. And then, finally, unlike any other great religious leader, not only did, did Jesus lay down his life voluntarily, but he predicted in John 10, <coughs> he would take it up again. And he repeatedly spoke of this before his death, that after three days, I'm going to rise again, I will come back from death to life, 
and you will see me alive again. That's a pretty bold claim. Um, Mohammed never did that. Buddha never did that. Confucius never did that. None of the other great religious leaders ever predicted their death, their burial, and then their resurrection back to life. And here again, this is a bold claim which, if it wasn't substantiated, then like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if he didn't rise from the dead, then our whole religion, our faith, and everything is in vain. We might as well go look for another one. But if, indeed, he rose from the dead, and there's historical proof of that, then we have to pay close attention to all of his other claims. And we will see when we examine his resurrection that, and here's where we come again to this word, eyewitness, the Bible tells us that there were not just one or two or even twelve, but five hundred plus eyewitnesses that saw Jesus crucified, dead, buried, thrown into a tomb, the tomb sealed with a stone, and three days later, alive and well. And as we just read in Romans 1 verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection all make Jesus absolutely unique. There isn't anyone else in all of human history like him. And I think we're going to stop there tonight, and then next time we want to jump right in, and we're going to talk more about the Bible, the uniqueness of the Bible, that there isn't any other book like the Bible. And by the way, the word Bible just means book. It comes from the Greek word biblos, which is translated throughout the scriptures as a book. Well, this is the book unlike any other book. And we're going to look in some detail how we can know without any doubt in our mind that the, the book we hold on our lap called the Holy Bible is separate and unique from any other religious writing. This is God's book. It is His authoritative word. And all 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of more than 2,000 years has one unified message. It all, from Genesis to Revelation, talks about the one and only true God and His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, and the only way to salvation, which is through Him. And we'll talk more about the evidence of prophecy, uh, historical, ar archaeological evidence, and all these other proofs that give us ample evidence that we can trust the Bible to be the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Word tells us that you've given us many infallible proofs. You never asked us to just blindly believe in something that had no evidence, no fact, or no basis. Lord, you've called us to believe in a God, in a Bible, and in a Savior that has been documented time and time again by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of eyewitness accounts that you are the one and the only true God, that your Son, Jesus Christ, is the one and the only true way to God, to heaven, and to salvation, and that when he came into this world, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection set him apart from any other religious leader 
any other great prophet or great person that he is who he says he is. The great I am, the Alpha, the Omega, the bread of life, the light of the world, the one and the only Savior for mankind. God, we thank you and we praise you that you've made the way so simple. There's only one way and we can't miss it. His name is Jesus Christ. And we praise you, we bless you, we magnify you tonight for making the way of salvation so plain and so simple that even a small child can find it. God bless every listener on this phone line, on the internet, or listening to this recording tonight. Strengthen our faith and equip us to be able to give a logical, reasoned defense and explanation for our hope in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you and we praise you tonight in Jesus' name.